0: And Radio Derb is on the air. That was a clip from Haydn's Derbyshire March number one, which I occasionally open with as a change from number two. And this is, of course, your urbanely genial host, John Derbyshire, surveying the week's events from a national conservative point of view. July 20th came and went with some scattered lamentations on its being the 54th anniversary of our landing on the Moon. The occasion for lamentation was that if you compare our progress in manned spaceflight across these 54 years, 1969 to 2023, with our progress in manned air flight across the 54 years from the Wright brothers' first venture in 1903 to the mass-market international air travel of 54 years later, 1957, well, there is no comparison. All else equal, we should by now be taking summer vacation breaks on the moons of Saturn. But we're not. All else has not, of course, been equal. There's much to be said on the other side of the subject. I've said some of it myself, so spare me the emails. Then, if you don't currently own a copy of Mr and Mrs Charles Murray's 1989 book, Apollo, The Race to the Moon, go to Amazon or Abe Books and get one. It's... Definitive. For us old China hands, this year's July 20th has another melancholy aspect. It marks exactly 50 years since Bruce Lee died in Hong Kong at age 32. Given that Lee was one of the fittest people on this planet, was not ailing in any obvious way and did not suffer an accident or an act of violence, his death has been a bit of a mystery. Radio Derb had a lengthy comment on the matter five years ago. You can read the transcript on my website. Executive summary? Lee most likely died from heatstroke. It was awful hot in Hong Kong at the time. It was awful hot here in Long Island five years ago when I passed that comment, and it's been awful hot recently all over the USA. People die of heat stroke when it's this hot. More people than you'd think. Stay cool, listeners. How do you feel about public acts of violence, listener? In our currently prevailing state ideology, public violence is deplorable and the perps are to be hunted down and savagely punished only when the act is committed by bad people against good people, as defined in that state ideology. When good people are violent towards bad people, though, that is commendable. That is righteous resistance against systemic injustice. The category of bad people, as thus defined, embraces all working-class white men living in the countryside or in small towns. Let's call them good old boys for short. It embraces a lot of others, too. Even a college-educated city dweller is a bad person if he holds the wrong opinions. Cops are pretty universally bad, although white cops are a degree badder than minority cops. The category of good people embraces most blacks, with some singular exceptions like Clarence Thomas and Larry Elder. It also embraces leftist radicals, especially those willing to go to the streets, breaking, burning and assaulting in defence of the state ideology. Petty criminals are good by default, since their petty criminality, I mean things like shoplifting, is obviously something they're driven to in desperation, by their poverty and hunger in our unjust society. On some similar principle, illegal aliens are all good. Lunatics are also good if they direct their lunacy at bad people. These patterns have been in unusually plain view the past few days. Two adjacent pages, pages 10 and 11, in my New York Post this morning illustrate the fact. Page 10 informs me that New York City has agreed to pay $13 million to Black Lives Matter demonstrators who were arrested by police during the 2020 George Floyd riots. This is the end result of a lawsuit against the city, a lawsuit with around 1,300 plaintiffs. So the average payout per plaintiff will be $10,000. Also on page 10, but bleeding over into page 11, we got a witness statement in the case of a cop who punched a shoplifter. The originating event was back in October 2021. The shoplifter, we don't know his name or his race, was highly aggressive. When the cop tried to arrest him, he resisted. This witness says that the cop acted reasonably. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office has indicted the cop on a third-degree assault charge worth a year in jail on conviction. The cop pleaded not guilty this Wednesday. We don't know why it took two years to get to arraignment. In both cases the cops used minor violence to restrain difficult perps. That's a thing cops do. They're trained to do it. The perps in both cases were good people, though. Angry communists and a shoplifter. The latter, I'll assume, to be black, on the general principle that, if he was white, the authorities would have told us. Being a shoplifter, in any case, makes him a good person. Just trying to feed his family, poor soul. Yes, it's a complete inversion of normal values. As Seth Barron remarks, commenting on these two cases, quote, District Attorney Alvin Bragg has sent the strongest signal yet That public disorder in New York City is a protected activity, and official efforts to contain it will be treated with harsh sanction. There's nothing special about, about New York City here, of course. This upside down value system prevails all over the country. Wait, did I just say country? Ah, yes. Country. Next segment. Country. Country music. The Jason Aldine flap, of course. If you haven't heard about it, here's the intro paragraph from Thursday's Washington Post story on it. Quote country music star Jason Aldean is facing immense backlash over his new music video Try That in a Small Town, which combines news footage of Black Lives Matter protests, violence and crime, with lyrics such as... End quote. The post then gives us sample lyrics. I'll give you a few more than they give you. Lyrics. Quote. Suck a punch somebody on a sidewalk. Carjack an old lady at a red light. Pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store. You think it's cool? Well, act a fool if you like. Cuss out a cop. Spit in his face. Stomp on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think you're tough. Try that in a small town. See how far you make it down the road. Round here we take care of our own. You cross that line, it won't take long for you to find out. I recommend you don't. The song was actually released in May but it didn't go on YouTube as video until last Friday. The video has news clips of the Floyd rioters trashing stores and assaulting police. Other clips show an attempted convenience store robbery and other apparent crimes. The video also uses the courthouse of Murray County, Tennessee as a backdrop. A black guy suspected of having raped a white girl was lynched there from the courthouse balcony back in 1927. What a banquet of good old boy stereotypes for good people to feed on. They've been clutching their pearls and shrieking from coast to coast. More from Thursday's Washington Post. Quote, A channel devoted to country music videos has pulled the video out of rotation after accusations that it promotes racism and violence. But Try That In A Small Town has also leapt to the top of many streaming charts and top Republicans are defending Aldean. Who insists the song has nothing to do with race? End quote. As if there is anything in today's USA that has nothing to do with race. But I guess Aldine is just saying what his recording company handlers tell him to say. Sucker punch someone on a sidewalk, carjack an old lady at a red light pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store. If I had the patience and skill with criminal justice databases that Steve Saylor has, I would be able to give you a total number, an aggregate number of all those crimes for some recent year in the USA. If I did that, what proportion of the perps would be black? Ninety percent? Ninety-five? For goodness sake, we all know that to a fair first approximation, all street crime in the USA is committed by blacks. As for that lynching, is a country singer supposed to research the history of a building a hundred years back before he poses in front of it? And, as I've told you before, lynching was no respecter of races. Blacks lynched blacks, whites lynched whites. In Clarksville, 60 miles north of the infamous courthouse, a white man who was thought to have raped a black woman was lynched by a black mob in 1914. The coroner's jury decided that it was a justifiable homicide and they freed the black lynchers. Truly, the past is another country. To appreciate that fact you need some imagination, some ability to think about things in other than state-approved cookie-cutter stereotypes. The good people don't rise to that standard. The fuss over Jason Aldean and his song is in a long, long line of descent from one of the oldest social divides in human history, the one between town and country. Storytellers have been making fun of country bumpkins and city slickers all the way back to the ancient Greek dramatists, at least... That's enough time for some peculiar twists and turns to have developed. Consider, for example, today's USA. Our big cities now are dominated by good people. Blacks, progressive whites, petty criminals oppressed by poverty and lunatics in need of community care. There's a seasoning of bad people. Cops, of course. Some wealthy non progressives like Donald Trump, a petty bourgeoisie of small storekeepers and franchisees. They have no weight, though. It's good people, blacks and progressive whites, who call the shots. The problem here is that not many of those good people are smart. For sure, not smart enough to think through the consequences of their policies. For example, petty criminals are good people, just struggling to put food on their families. It follows that punishing them for their petty crimes is wrong, wrong. There you go, they're not getting punished. And the cops who once deterred and arrested these good people no longer want to do so because they fear ending up in the dock themselves, like that New York City officer in my opening segment. Or, worse yet, like poor Derek Chauvin. Here's a story from CBS News last October. Headline Chicago Police Department struggles as burnt-out cops quit, with some heading to suburbs. That's the headline. Since 2019, the story tells us, 3,300 officers retired, resigned, were discharged, were killed in the line of duty or were fired. From that date up to last October around 1,600 officers have been hired. That's half the number of those who departed. It's the same in New York City. We get regular reports in the local news. Probably it's the same in all our big cities. More crime, fewer cops. Add to that the closing because of unrestrained shoplifting of retail drug stores that city inhabitants depend on for their daily supplies stupid policies bad outcomes along with normal values another thing being inverted here is those ancient tropes of stupid country bumpkin and sharp-witted City slicker. At any rate, looking at our major urban centres today, you have to think that what we have in charge there are city bumpkins. The city bumpkins are doubling down, though. We here at VDare just retweeted a post from one of them at Reddit. It's an extract from a longer post you can read at Reddit, posted in all seriousness, so far as I can judge. I'll just quote the part that we retweeted, quote. So what is to be done? The Democrats should pursue policies that crush rural voters and make rural life as miserable as possible. Things like refusing federal flood insurance to rural areas, leaving rural roads wanting for federal dollars, not using federal money to build bridges or expand electric or sewer, ending federal ethanol subsidies and other farm subsidies, etc. All of that can make rural life even less attractive than it already is, and force that population of irredeemables into the cities where they can be re-educated and turned into citizens with something to contribute. With Trump, they let the mask drop and all of the country can see. There is no reason for the United States to ever spend another dime on rural America. And the sooner... Rural America is just a memory, the better. End quote. Ah, a sort of reverse Khmer Rouge policy. I hope it works out better than the original. If you want an example of this strange new genus, the city bumpkin, I offer you the current mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. His honour is clueless to a degree that it's hard not to find comical. Mayor Adams might indeed have stepped out of a play by Aristophanes. In my May 12th radio derb, I related the humiliation he suffered at the hands of New York's suburban Counties, country slickers near enough, when he tried to unload thousands of illegal aliens on them. That's Mayor Adams' most pressing problem right now. Not how the city can afford a $13 million payout to Antifa rioters who got their hair mussed. Not his dwindling police force. Not neighbourhood drugstores closing all over because of shoplifting. No, it's the illegal aliens swarming into the city. More than 90,000 since last spring. 55,000 of them still resident. 55,000 is more people than can be got into Yankee Stadium. Where can the mayor put them all? The city does have shelters for homeless people, but they were already full when the illegals showed up. 50,000 native vagabonds right there, for a total 100,000 city residents with no place to live, but what the city provides for them. Most of those citizens living in shelters are crazy people or addicts. Under a rational government, they would be in asylums or jails. All good people believe, however, that it is wrong, wrong, to lock someone up against his will. Unless, of course, he's a bad person with wrong opinions. The mayor is playing it by ear. Desperately juggling his tiny stock of options in hopes of looking effective. Balls in the air this week have included number one, limiting adult illegals to 60 days of city shelter, after which they'll have to reapply. What happens if, after 60 days, there's no shelter for them? TBD. Number two, Printed flyers in English and Spanish to be handed out at the southern border, warning wetbacks that New York City is really, really expensive and they should look at other locations. This programme has hit something of a snag, however. Neither federal authorities nor the National Guard is willing to hand out the flyers. Solution? TBD. This mess is all a plain, foreseeable consequence of New York City having proudly designated itself a sanctuary city. Many of us are still wondering, after many years, why Congress has not acted to ban sanctuary cities. Personally, I'm just glad I don't live in a sanctuary suburb. Nicole Jelinus, writing in the New York Post, July 19th, spelled out the cost of all this. Executive summary? New York can afford all these illegals only by cutting back on every other kind of spending. Schools, sanitation, police, Medicaid, etc. And in fact, Adams is already doing that. Soon the city will be being run mainly for the benefit of people who have no proper legal right to be here. What if there's a recession? Katie, bar the door. Quote from Miss Jelena's Mayor Adams' refusal to acknowledge that New York City cannot take on the burden of housing an undefined, open-ended number of migrants has created an entire new issue, one we haven't seen since the welfare reform days. A long-term social services spending burden we can't easily get out of. Adams has never offered an answer to the obvious question. What's the strategy to move migrants out of temporary shelter? End quote. That question may be an obvious one to you, ma'am, but to a city bumpkin like Adam's, it's way down the obvious list. A deeply unadvertised fact about COVID-19 is that it affects different races differently. Our own Lance Welton has spelled out the reasoning and some of the sources for this here at Vida.com. It's not scientifically controversial. As to the reasons for the differences, we get here into one of those hairy old nature-nurture puzzles. Obviously, different races have different frequencies of some genes. That's what makes them races. Duh! If COVID does what it does, based to some degree on your genotype, and those genes with differing frequencies are involved, then nature's a factor. If it's something else... If it's dietary or age-related or exposure to sunlight or environmental pollutants, then nurtures a factor. Perhaps both are. Perhaps one or other totally isn't. Lance, with a respectable professional journal as his source, actually names some suspect genes. So it looks like nature is definitely in there. Once the genetics of epidemiology is in play, though, there looms up the spectre of the Manichon Solution. The Manichon Solution is the name of a short story that ran in the December 1967 issue of Playboy magazine. I gave a full account of the story in my diary for July 2018. To the best of my knowledge, it was the first appearance in fiction of a bio-weapon that targeted specific races. I was reading sci-fi and imaginative fiction all through my teens and early twenties. I can't recall another example. Is such a bioweapon actually possible? I don't know enough of the science to judge. But then, nor do the politicians of China, Russia, India, Iran and elsewhere. I mean those politicians who are ultimately responsible for decisions about military research spending. Most of them don't even know as much science as I do. Once the idea of a race-targeting bioweapon has entered their awareness, though, they will surely get their researchers working on the issue. They will tell themselves it would be foolish not to, given that nations they regard as hostile may be doing the research. So, to the question, are China... Russia, the USA and other nations working on a Manichon solution, a race-targeting bioweapon? It is perfectly reasonable to assume that the answer to a better-than-90% probability is yes. OK, next question. Was the COVID outbreak a consequence of such research? To that, I have no idea what the yes-no probabilities are. It's not crazy to speculate, though. And if important people speculate out loud, they may prompt journalists and other professional inquirers to dig around and see what they can find. We really ought to know what our, and their, military researchers are up to. That is, of course, all much too grown-up for such a dense forest of infantilism as the US mainstream media. Race targeting? But there's no such thing as race. Unless you're a racist. (coughs) That said, it's also an area on which professional politicians should not venture opinions without very careful preparation. That goes double strength for politicians with a long paper trail of sympathy for conspiracy theories and other wackiness. Some things not even a Kennedy can get away with. I'm going to give my voice a rest. This segment other than this introduction, consists entirely of someone else speaking. She is addressing a hearing this week of the House Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. I'm giving her speech to you intact and whole because I think it's a clear, elegant statement of important facts. Over to Ms Morris. Uh, the, the motion to table is agreed to. We will now move to our second witness. Uh, Ms. Morris, you are recognized for five minutes.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. Um, my name is Emma-Jo Morris, uh, politics editor at Breitbart. Um, I'm here today because I published a series of news stories three years ago in October of 2020 about Hunter Biden's now infamous laptop, also known as the laptop from hell, Uh, which is seen as some of the most scandalous reporting of the last decade. Um, What was more scandalous than the reporting itself, though, was the fact that it exposed the unholy alliance between the intelligence community, social media platforms, and legacy media outlets. At the time, I was deputy politics editor at the New York Post, and um, my reporting showed that despite then-candidates Joe Biden's repeated and furious denials, he was apparently involved in the foreign business deals of his family. Over several days, just weeks before Americans would vote for their next president, I revealed verified authentic emails from the Biden Scion's hard drive showing Ukrainian business partners receiving leaks from the Obama White House. I documented an off-the-books meeting between then-Vice President Biden and a Ukrainian energy executive and introduced the world to the big guy um, who got action on a deal with CEFC, China Energy Company. The Post published exactly how the material for the reporting was obtained, even identifying our sources, um, as well as a federal subpoena showing the FBI was in possession of the material the story was based on and had been since December of 2019. Um, But when the stories appeared on social media that morning, the venue where millions of Americans go to find their news and editors to get their angles, uh, within hours the reporting was censored on all major platforms on the basis of being called hacked, or Russian disinformation. Um, Twitter refused to allow users to share the link to the stories, ban the links from being shared in private messages, a policy by the way that's used to clamp down on child porn um, and lock the post out of its verified account. Facebook said it would curb distribution and reach of the links on its platform. However, the stories were not based on hacked materials, nor were they Russian disinformation. And despite those claims appearing to come out of thin air at the time, we would eventually learn that they actually didn't come out of thin air at all. On October 19th, five days after The Post began publishing, Politico ran a story headlined, Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former Intel officials say. God, I can't even say that with a straight face, you know? politico printed a letter completely uncritically from veteran members of the u.s intelligence community falsely claiming that the post expose has quote all the classic earmarks of a russian information operation my god (laughs) most notable among the signatories of that letter were jim clapper from former dni michael hayden former cia john brennan former cia despite having such damaged credibility following their participation in the Russia collusion conspiracy theory. A few days later, on October 22nd, when Biden appeared in the second presidential debate and was uh, confronted with the facts of the post reporting, he said to Trump, quote, 50 former national intelligence professionals said this, what he's accusing me of is a Russian plot. But it was not. Um, And he knew that. Now fast forward to this year, three years later. Just last spring, House investigators revealed it was a call by now Secretary of State Antony Blinken to former acting CIA Director Michael Morell that prompted the spy letter published by Politico, which bypassed agency approval processes that would have been normally applied. It is also now known that ahead of my reporting, federal agencies were priming social media companies to execute an operation to discredit it. According to internal documents released by Elon Musk upon his acquisition of Twitter, the FBI and other intelligence community members essentially directed the platform's censorship operation in part externally by working with top management and in part internally by social media companies hiring eye-popping numbers of agency alumni. Journalist Michael Schallenberger reported, based on documents he obtained from Musk, that during all of 2020, the FBI and other law enforcement agencies repeatedly primed Twitter executives to dismiss reports of Hunter Biden's laptop as a Russian hack and leak operation. Feds arranged for top-secret security clearances to be granted to Twitter management and even had encrypted messaging networks set up, which they dubbed a virtual war room. To this day, hundreds of people from the intelligence community work at social media companies. Over the last few years, my reporting has been confirmed by virtually every mainstream news outlet, from the Washington Post to the New York Times to Politico, when the stakes were nothing, by the way, two years later. No one denies that the laptop is real, that the origin story is exactly what I told you it was in the first place. This elaborate censorship conspiracy wasn't because the information being reported on was false. It was because it was true and it was a threat to the power centers in this country what this relationship between the u.s government officials and american corporations represent is is an unprecedented push to undermine the first amendment the right to think write read say whatever we want and how we respond will determine whether we see a free press as inalienable or as optional
0: And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. Just as I was preparing this podcast for the airwaves, I saw the news of Tony Bennett's death. To anyone who loves the great American songbook, it was sad news indeed. I only saw Tony Bennett in person once. That was sometime in the mid-1980s. I was walking along a street in Midtown Manhattan, and I'm darned if I can remember which street, except that it was in the neighbourhood of Radio City Music Hall, although I don't think it was 6th Avenue. Anyway, I was walking along when I encountered a huge crowd spilling over into the roadway. Working my way round the back of the crowd, I saw that some kind of stage had been set up over the sidewalk. On the stage was Tony Bennett, singing. I can't remember what he sang, but I do recall thinking that he looked to be thoroughly enjoying himself. So I very briefly attended a free performance by one of the great American songbook artists. Thank you, sir. Item Early this week, John Kerry, President Biden's climate envoy, went to Peking in hopes of getting the Chicoms on board with the climate change cult. There were, Kerry said as he boarded the plane home, there were, quote, very frank conversations, end quote. Translated from diplo-speranto, that means they blow us off. And indeed, in a speech following the visit, Chinese President Xi Jinping told the world that China would pursue its goals to phase out carbon dioxide pollution at its own pace and in its own way. Presumably that means continuing to build coal-fired power plants at the rate of two a week. And if the foreign devils don't like it, they can go pound sand. Kerry's visit was so unsuccessful he didn't even get to meet President Xi. For a guy whose most famous utterance is Don't you know who I am? That must have been Wormwood and Gall. Doubly so, when, later in the week, Henry Kissinger flew over on a goodwill visit. He did get an audience with Xi. In fact, Henry got the full imperial treatment. The Chaikoms like Henry. For one thing, he helped to liberate them from the icy embrace of Leonid Brezhnev's USSR 50 years ago. For another... Henry is a hundred years old, and Chinese people have a thing about longevity. Plus, I'm guessing, plus they wanted to stick a finger in John Kerry's eye one more time. Who wouldn't? Item. Just one more. I'm over my time budget here. This is David Goldman one of the smartest guys i know here was david on twitter july 20th tweet the ukraine war is a needless pathetic disgusting tragic comedy the us and uk could have stuck to minsk too and kept us missiles far from the russian border Putin made a huge blunder invading. Now we're stuck with a war of attrition that will leave Ukraine depopulated and in ruins. End tweet. That's all I have, ladies and gents. Thank you for listening and try to stay cool in this heatwave. Don't let what happened to poor Bruce Lee happen to you. As an aid to keeping cool, I recommend a neck fan. My daughter Nellie bought me one for my birthday, from Walmart apparently. I scoffed at the thing at first. Mrs Derbyshire, when out of earshot of Nellie, did worse than scoff. She said it was dorky. As if I would ever associate with anything dorky. Now, however, I'm addicted and I take my neck fan everywhere. Give it a try. We're currently hearing a lot about whistleblowers. Good luck to them. And let's give thanks that we live in a country where people blowing whistles on government misbehaviour don't get hustled away and shot. Hearing the word so much, though, has got me thinking about whistling. Not the sort you do with any instrumental aid, just whistling with your lips, teeth and tongue. People used to whistle a lot. Now I never hear it. I don't know why. Whistling even made the pop music charts once or twice. Here's a specimen from 1967. Whistling Jack Smith. Whistling, I was Kaiser Bill's Batman. It was a major hit in Britain and Germany. You can't get any more hip than that. There will be more from Radio Derb next week.